Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 26th, 2015. This is episode 1581 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a very interesting one for you today. Uh, not too long ago, I heard about a cat named Jim Steele. One of you guys uh, emailed me about him and said, this is a guy that you really need to listen to about global warming. And I thought, oh, God. Oh, God. And then it turned out that Jim is actually a former... A uh, California state biologist who uh, has done decades of research and is a global warming skeptic and has written a book called Landscapes and Cycles, an environmentalist journey to climate skepticism. Uh, and he's not a guy that says we can just do whatever we want to destroy the planet, kind of like me, but that we're actually doing more harm than good with this misguided belief that we can blame one thing for everything and we're not addressing the real environmental damage that's been done all over the world. And there's actually a lot of simple solutions to what look like very complex problems if we take the problems and analyze them at their root level. For those of you that have struggled with this issue, I invite you to listen today with an open mind to somebody that's put decades of research at the field level into restoring environments and habitats instead of just going, oh, it's global warming, we need a carbon tax. And actually listen to the results, the evaluations, and... Uh, the conclusions, which are maybe not what you would expect based on the intro so far. Anyway, though, before I do that, let's, let's uh, go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and help make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day and I hear, gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us to think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, Get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Save Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, Hey, Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show. And I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what. Just just stick with us, 
And when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later, it was February of the next year, that we launched the MSB. And we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I called them the original Survival Podcast sponsor, because they were first, and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original Survival Podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. And you'll hear banging in the background today as my kitchen is being ripped apart. I apologize for it. That's just the way that it's going to be, at least for the intro section. Anyway, I have from uh, TSPWiki.com the awesome Alex Shrugged, uh, the single whip law of China, a fireball in Thungaria, and Serbia is conquered by dummies and clever Cossacks. I'm going to read the single whip law of China. Corruption has plugged the Chinese tax system, so they have passed a law that centralizes and consolidates those functions so that there is a consistent tax method across the land. The name of this new law is the single whip law. Single whip is a martial arts term. It is a stance that is leaning forward with the arm forward for defense and an arm held back to hide the striking blow. Golly, nothing implied by that, is there? Aside from the desire for efficiency, the law allows for the importation of silver from the New World and a change in how taxes are figured on domestic mining operations. This causes a dramatic increase in the taxes collected from Chinese mining operations, or at least the reporting increase because wildcat miners figured it's cheaper to pay the tax than to dodge the authorities. My take by Alex Shrug, the Chinese government assumed that silver would never lose its value, but after the silver market fell, people were paying their taxes with devalued silver. They wouldn't buy what it used to buy, but it did work great for their tax obligation. The single whip law didn't stop the corruption either. It simply traded a lot of petty corruption for centralized major corruption. Remember, in 1995, after Gulf War I, the United, State, nation, the United Nations established oil for food program, allowing Iraq to sell its oil to certain approved companies in exchange for food and essential medical aid. This program turned into a kickback scheme that netted Saddam Hussein $10 billion. UN officials and various companies made out like bandits because they were bandits. The subsequent investigation resulted in stern warnings to public officials, suspended sentences, and a few missing people. I don't recall anyone at the UN being fired. And you wouldn't either. And you wouldn't either. Why? Because all of this is legalized extortion. All of this tax talk is using the law, just like we talked about Friday, to make something that was previously illegal, legal, And extortion is the use of force or threats to gain from another party, specifically to take their money. 
That's that's what this all is. I don't have a lot more to say on that today because I'm going to try to get through the, uh, the the intro segment here with a uh, minimum of banging and sawzalls and stuff like that. So uh, next up, let me just remind you about the Member Support Brigade. It's how you can support this show. If you really love what we do and you want us to be around forever, that is the best way you can help make sure that happens. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members for more information. And uh, the way I have the program set up, you will get discounts on over 60 companies now, uh, probably for things that you're buying anyway. And I'm bringing a new one on board today. As soon as I get done with uh, producing today's show, uh, I'll be getting them added to the MSB. So keep your eyes open for those guys. Uh, I think you're really going to like them. Absolutely brand new thing. I just brought you a comfrey vendor, and now I'm going to bring you something, well, You'll see when it shows up. But do consider joining the MSB and remember military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and active duty and prior service, first responders, including uh, firefighters, paramedics, and uh, EMTs. All of you guys do qualify for a discount. Email me with service discount TSPC in the subject line and uh, tell me about your service in one or two sentences. Next up today, uh, real quick before we get started into our interview with Jim Steele, I want to tell you about the Bob Wells Plant of the Week. Every week we have a new uh, plant from Bob Wells Nursery that we learn about that we can grow in our own backyards and help feed ourselves. This week it's the Lee Jujube. This tree is adaptable from zones 5 through zone 9. The Jujube is, is also called the Chinese date. It's a round-shaped fruit, reddish-brown, dry and wrinkled, sweet and chewy like dates when fully ripe in early fall. This is an attractive, easy-to-grow tree, hardy, drought-resistant, virtually pest and disease-free, and is self-fruitful, which means it does not require a pollinator. Um, but my experience has been with jujube that you get better yields if you have at least two varieties. Um, I also will tell you that there's a tremendous ethnic market for this plant. Uh, I have put in an apple orchard this year. I have a lot of apples that are going to go elsewhere on the property. And I've been thinking about putting another uh, apple cider orchard out in the front of the property. And I'm really thinking maybe now that by fall when that area is prepared and ready to go, I might turn it into a jujube orchard or maybe a hybrid jujube and apple. Because there is a lot to be done with this plant, um, and there is no doubt that you can sell it. I've had several Asian customers for my uh, my ducks, and whenever I say to a, a customer that is you know of Asian origin the word jujube, they light up. Uh, specifically, people who have lived you know in Asia and then immigrated here. When they hear that, it's like hearing, you know, your grandmother's cookies, I think, to a degree, because it's very hard for them to find here in the States. Uh, they are grown quite a bit in California, but Texas, I mean, come on. Uh, and when being adaptable from zones five to nine, it's like, why aren't we growing more of these? They also seem to not care about the alkalinity we have at all. They seem very hardy. They're, they're not susceptible to things like fire blight. This is the bane of apple production, uh, especially east of the, the Rocky Mountains. So uh, it, it's really worth giving a look to this uh, this tree. Uh, they're also quite columnar in shape. They are thorny, but they tend to grow pretty much in a, a column shape. So they're they're pretty narrow compared to something like an apple. So they're a little bit more suited to high-density orchards. Uh, you can learn more about this plant and many plants like it, again, at bombwellsnursery.com. Remember, they do give you a 10% discount on all purchases if you're a member, Support Brigade member. And with that, I've got the housekeeping knocked out. And I want to introduce our special guest, Mr. Jim Steele. Uh, Jim is a uh, former state biologist with the state of California. He's done extensive research, uh, again, at the field level. His career began in 1983 uh, when the State University Biology Department wanted to close the Sierra Nevada field campus and use the savings to uh, support uh, more molecular and genetic research. 
In contrast, the dean of the College of, of Science and Engineering, Dr. James Kelly, was an avid supporter of field stations, and Dr. Kelly understood that students must immerse themselves in the environment they are studying. Otherwise, they would be forever misled by limited observations and the resulting bad models. Although Jim Steele at the time was just completing his master's degree, Dean Kelly believed Jim was the best person to resurrect and grow the Sierra Nevada field campus. Together they turned a rustic Sierra Nevada field campus into one of California's leading environmental education stations. And with that, I want to say, hey, Jim, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Jack. Hey, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on today. This is going to be a touchy subject. I think some people are going to love this interview, and, and some people uh, may gain a lot from it that, that wouldn't think they would, and some people might have their eyes shoot out of their head. Um, but it's for all three types. But uh, before we get into climate change and, and your take on this as a, as, as a scientist yourself, uh, what I would actually like to do is let you kind of introduce yourself, kind of how did you get into what you were doing, usually – Uh, people don't dream about doing things like this when they're nine years old, chasing girls in school or whatever. So how did you end up where you're at and where are you at? Uh, you know, I was always a nature boy. And sort of my dream job was I got appointed to be uh, the director of San Francisco State University's Sierra Nevada Field Campus, which was located about an hour north of Lake Tahoe. And part of that job was monitoring uh, wildlife in the Sierra Nevada and trying to understand what was causing different fluctuations. So you know, part of my work uh, led me to doing some uh, restoration. I did a lot of work monitoring bird populations, and, and it, it just hit me how much, uh, how important it is the, to understand the local climate change, how to understand uh, microclimates. And and I started to feel. Uh, Like people were pushing this whole CO2 analysis and it was, it was taking us away from the, our real power to have a positive influence on local conditions. And so that started me doing more research, more understanding it and prompted me to write this book feeling like the good science is being hijacked by the politics of, of climate scientists and people weren't looking at the real local issues. And, and one of the local issues we realized was that we had this crash in bird populations that was due to a, a, the placement of a railroad track across a wet meadow 100 years ago. And that caused the whole meadow to dry out, caused the bird populations to, to plummet. And people were blaming, uh, not everybody, but a lot of people say, oh, that's just like what global warming is saying. And, and their solution was, we'll stop your CO2. Well, the real solution, which we ended up with, was, was, was fix the hydrology, fix the land. And that brought the birds back. And, and you've, you've probably heard all the stuff about the California droughts. Since we fixed the land, the, the uh, water table has risen. There's been, it's been wetter there than uh, before the drought conditions because we, we fixed everything on a, on a local level. So partly my whole push is, is I wanted people to see a, a biologist, a, a ecologist who would consider themselves an environmentalist, to understand that that we have to look beyond all this politics of global warming and, and look at the environment from a more local view. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm so glad to hear you say that because when I, I am a, a a global warming from CO2 skeptic to the nth degree, I really have some serious questions. I really feel like the agenda is not what it's claimed to be. And I'm always accused of being someone that hates the planet. And I'm like, the only way you can say that is if you don't pay attention to anything else that I do or say. 
because I'm very concerned about the environment. And, and this has been my take that, and I'd just love to hear your thoughts on it based on what you just said, that this has been the single most damaging thing to real environmentalism that's occurred in the last hundred years because it's, it's painted people in a black-white mold and you can't get people that would otherwise listen uh, to, about these real issues like what you just talked about or like removing a mountaintop and dumping sulfur into the, uh, the, 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 the streams from, from coal mining in West Virginia or any of these things because all they hear is blah, 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 environmentalism, global warming. And on the other side... The people that are environmentally concerned, you can't get them to listen to anything but that. And, and to me, it's actually done a, an extreme amount of damage to our ability to correct these problems with real-world solutions that we can implement. Uh, absolutely, and, and that was my my motive for trying to write this book. Unfortunately, it sort of it puts me in the middle and. Uh, Sort of when you're in the middle, you get hit by traffic going over both sides, and, and people on the right don't think I was hard enough, and people on the left were, were you know, sometimes just won't look at it because they think if you're a skeptic, you must be a, a, a right wing nut. But people that know me and, and colleagues who read the book, you know, felt, you know, they call it even masterful. But it's it, 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 almost what I did is after looking at what we were doing locally and fixing the restoring this watershed and it, it brought the birds back, it brought the water back. You know, I would say this, uh, the other thing like drought is I know people like uh, ducks unlimited, they went out and fixed local habitat, the uh, prairie potholes that a lot of these ducks breed in. And last year, despite all these droughts we've had, the ducks were 43% above <laughs> what the average had been between 1915 and 1980. So it, it's just sort of testimony. If we really, you know, local groups, conservation managers, the government, whatever, if we work together at that local level, we can do a lot to kind of protect things. But instead, what I see a lot of people say, oh, it's CO2. And, and one chapter in the book, I talked about the, the golden toad, which I went through all the different species that have been uh, suggested were, being, were suffering due to global warming. And, and one was the, glo uh, the golden toad down in uh, Costa Rica. And it, it died because transportation had been moving this disease that originally started in Africa. And researchers brought this African uh, frog into their labs. It had a fungus that didn't spread to all these other animals. Well, it, as people started spreading, some of the conservationists were saying, you know, we got to go and, and save some of these small species that are isolated because they'll go extinct like the golden toad and do some some uh, captive breeding to save them until we can develop some immunity where the global warming folks actually fought them. And, and, and in these scientific journals, people were were attacking conservationists that were trying to save the frogs because they were saying, oh, you're not helping global warming. You're, it, the real threat is CO2. And they were saying, you know, uh, Stop promoting, stop putting out CO2 as a way to save the frogs. Those frogs would have all died. And, and the people on the ground level were the ones that were really saving it. And, and somehow it's the, all this politics is just like it's, it's the worst thing possible. And so I can see it from local levels that I see in, in California to all these global issues, in it, whether it's penguins, polar bears, frogs, uh, butterflies. I went through all these lists and, and looked how sort of good science was hijacked. And, and for me personally, I felt like my uh, discipline w was being defiled. And it was causing more and more people that were polarized on the right to say, we don't trust 
you know, conservation biologists at all because of this line. They're just pushing all this kind of uh, global warming change. And I understand that reaction. And, and I want people to trust good conservation biologists. So part of that's why I wanted to kind of push this book and say, look at this science. Look at how they're dealing with it. And, and the other thing that pushed me was that I feel like there's a movement now to kind of shut up skeptics. And, and what good science demands is you have lively debates. And people are trying to shut down the skeptic side from, from many different angles, which was, disturbs me even more. So on, on all levels, where this is free speech or good science, I feel like this politicization of CO2 is, uh, is just, is defiled the real good science. I, I think it has. And I, you know, I, I know it sounds conspiratorial, but I, I honestly feel as though that's some levels that's the intent because it gives the big companies in, in return for exchanging a, a new commodity, which is a credit, uh, a new, a new fiat currency basically and funneling it through a banking system, a license to pollute in many ways because, well, as long as you're offsetting your carbon or reducing your carbon, then whatever else you do is okay. And like you were saying, if you drain the hydrology of, of, a, of a land area, the individual components within that ecology that have depended on that, that water being there are going to suffer. I, I think we can see climate change all over the planet every day, and it's mostly regional, and it's mostly based on things we've done to alter the ecology. Or the other way to look at it, be I would think there are places where Maybe the ecology's not that great. Maybe we're not the ones that messed it up. But maybe if we took the lessons for where we fixed bad places that we caused, we could make those places better and more inhabitable and more useful. Uh, absolutely. It, you know, I titled the book Landscapes and Cycles because I think you have to look at it from, from two points of view. And, and, and what if, if you deforest the land, then you raise the surface temperature, uh, the skin temperature, they'll call it, by 10 to 20 degrees. If you if you take a scrubland or grassland, it'll be 20 degrees higher. And if you if you have urban environments, you're going to make those. You might have like a 40 degrees difference between a forested area and an urban environment, just based on microclimates, based on how the environment takes care of the climate. And and all that gets read in and in as global climate. When we really what you should do is look at at microclimates. I know I, I, when I was trying to study the microclimates in the areas that we were researching, I could take a infrared temperature gun and depending whether I put it on a, a road or gravel, grassland or, or, or trees, I could have like a 30 degree difference just within that small microclimate. And, and when you, in, in most animals, most species, they move and they'll, they'll move from a hot to a low. They'll, they'll, uh, behaviorally adjust, adjust their temperature. But people were pushing that all these animals were dying because over a hundred years the temperature had risen by almost a degree on average. It was just nuts. It's so disconnected with what's happening on the local level. I just it's totally distorting. It sort of reminded me of a I don't know if the old movie Rainmaker. I'm not good with the movie stars, but I think it was Burt Lancaster. It was sort of based on the on the. Dust Bowl years. And I think that was a, a, a time where it sort of showed how people screwed up the landscape combined with the La Nina natural drought. So you had this landscape and cycles that, that conspired to make this, you know, awful, uh, terrible kind of thing with all the dust bowls. And so the rainmaker is trying to come in and sell his ability. Well, I can fix it. You know, and, and one of the ranchers said, we don't believe in rainmakers. And, and the rainmaker trying to get his, his money and his allegiance says, well, what do you believe in? Dying cattle. 
and I almost feel like the whole it, it's not necessarily you know a, a, a planned conspiracy, but once these people believe that they're paranoid that this CO2 that we're pumping in the air is going to cause all these catastrophes, they're trying to get everybody to believe like them, and so they just push all these catastrophes that really have no basis in science. And that's probably what I, I try to list with all these species: look at how bad some of the science is. Once you're you're uh, sort of just mesmerized by this idea that the earth is going to hell, but there's cults that think that there's doomsday all the time. And this time dressing it up in the science has just been even more powerful. Wow. That's an amazing analysis. And it, it, what, what, what strikes me and I'd like you to speak to this a little bit too, because I've spoken out against this as a, a lay person in the world of science. Uh, I have a little bit of a background in herpetology, but I'm by no means an environmental scientist or a biologist or a climatologist or anything like that. And basically, I'm constantly told to shut up because since you're not a scientist, you can't say anything. And and this seems preposterous. Because when you were talking about using a thermal gun, and that's you know a, a high-level scientific instrument, and I think about bringing my students here to learn about gardens and planting and, and, and microclimates, and we're standing in an area, and it's 104 degrees in the middle of the summer, and I take them uh, behind an oak tree under heavy mulch and have them feel where I'm, you know, I'm planting a plant that can't tolerate the heat, and yet it's growing. And in and, and there, it feels like a refrigerator because it's 68 degrees there. And as a herpetologist, I can tell you this. Animals do thermoregulate. They move. The, the, and what you said there was so profound that the concept that we're going to have extinction events over a one-degree temperature change just seems ridiculous, and yet it's sold and it's believed. And I think it's mostly because the average person that wants things to be better than they are doesn't really get asked to do anything. It's just, okay, as long as I vote for this guy, it's all okay now. Uh, yeah, it's like you know, buy a, a hybrid, vote for this guy, and uh, recycle, and that will save everything. And it, and it, that will do nothing. If if we did not fix the watershed in our area, the the degradation of that watershed would have continued. The species would have declined. It, it, it would have kept getting worse. What really had to happen was was to to restore the watershed. Yet I had people saying, "Oh, it's, it's CO two. You got. I'm going to go out and protest coal." And it, it was just a, t a total disconnect. And, and you're right. We, you go into the shade. They they were pushing this animal, the pika, and it's sort of a, a rabbit-like creature that lives in the rock piles throughout the the mountainous west. And they said, "Oh, because it lives at the top of the mountains, the global warming was going to kill it." Well. They went out and did all this research, and they found like 19% of, of the new pika they found were actually moving to lower elevations. They were finding some of the same thing with birds. They're moving to lower elevations. It, 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 they're not looking at the microclimates. They're not looking at the regional. It, it, partly what got me is when I was doing this watershed, we, I looked at the temperatures of the Sierra Nevada. And if you looked at Yosemite, you looked at around Lake Tahoe, the highest maximum temperatures, which what if you're fearful of global warming, it's going to kill something. The highest maximum temperatures were in the 30s and 40s. It hasn't exceeded that in, in most of the Sierra Nevadas. Now, minimum temperatures have increased, and so they average that together and tell you, oh, you know, look, everything's going warmer, but minimum temperatures don't kill you. Minimum temperatures don't add heat stress. And, and so it's so the, the metrics they use when they average things together, you lose sense of what's going on on a microclimate and you're losing sense of what's happening daytime or nighttime. It, and actually, the global average, much of that's being driven by warming in the Arctic. And 
part of that is just because when the winds, and this is well established in a sort of consensus, it was a change in the winds, a thing called the Arctic Oscillation, blew a lot of the ice out into the, the Atlantic. That caused heat. This, the middle levels of the Arctic have all this heat stored in it from this warm Atlantic water that comes in is denser because it's saltier, but that allowed all that heat to kind of escape out into the atmosphere. Yeah. It, and that warmed it. So, But if we look at the Arctic, the Arctic is actually cooling. The upper 700 meters of the water are cooling. But that's called, but it causes the air to warm, and that's driving up this uh, global average. And again, it's a, a local issue. It's not a, a, a global issue. It's not something that's affecting us in California. But it, it just confounds it, and it confuses people. And, it again, what they do is they just push catastrophe, and that just misleads our understanding and the solutions we can do to make it better. Yeah, I mean, what you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's it's natural cycles that are more of a critical contributor to overall climate change, whether it's regional, global, local, national, what have you. Absolutely. You know, I've... I reserve, I, 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 CO2 is a greenhouse gas. It's gone up. There, there's no denying that that's happened. But there's no consensus on, uh, how sensitive our climate is to CO2. It, the, the sun does a much better job of heating up the oceans than the CO2 does. It, but you know, what I, what I would predict, if we look at the natural cycles of the way the sun pushes more heat northward is, and the way the, the El Ninos and the Pacific Decadal Oscillation affect natural climate, I would suspect that we're going to see the Arctic ice start to come back based on natural cycles. So the people that predict catastrophe say, oh, it's going to, we're going to lose all the ice. So as I see that unfold over the next 20 or 30 years, I'll have a better sense of how sensitive the climate is to all the CO2. But from everything I look at, and the number of places where it's not warming, and, and like half of the Antarctic is not warming. Uh, much of it, the eastern United States is actually, for the last hundred years, has been cooling. So there, it's it's not a global thing; it's a regional thing, and it's it's a combination of landscapes and and different cycles that are affecting it. CO two contributes, but it I think it's probably mostly insignificant. I may be wrong, and I'll see in the next 20 years, but I don't think anybody has enough data to show how sensitive it is. And if you look at all the models, they're all over the place in terms of sensitivity. I mean, my understanding is this, that, that CO2 itself as a molecule is pretty good at knocking back some of the UV light spectrum, and it does that. And there's a certain point that you get to where it's kind of got all of its favorite wavelengths, and it's kind of done what it can with that. And at that point... If you add more, it's not necessarily a good thing, but its effect is 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 far in decline, and we passed that that kind of saturation limit quite a while ago. And that at that point, the current theory is as follows: the additional CO2 contributes to higher levels of humidity, and therefore the heat, the CO2 is causing the humidity, and therefore causing global warming. And, and that just doesn't. That doesn't add up to me because you would be able to find relative humidity increases globally then. That's not there. It doesn't make sense to me. You know, even as a layman, that doesn't make sense. But these individual regional things, and I think the bigger damage is let's just say CO2 is a problem. Let's just say it is, and let's say it's a bigger problem than you and I think it is. We still can only do so much about that. There's only so much that can be done. We are not going to stop burning fossil fuels. Nobody's planning to stop burning fossil fuels, and most of the people complaining about it are using fossil fuels every day of their life, and they're not going to stop. 
But these individual areas where we've caused damage or where there's already like environmental damage, we can actually do something. That's always been my point. Well, well, absolutely. It, it, in you know when I, when they do this equation of you know partly of what are we going to do with fossil fuels? I, I don't think they because we've been able to mechanize our agriculture a lot better. A lot of these marginal farms that took away from good habitat are now going back into the wild. So there's a plus there. When when people were starving, they were overhunting stuff. So the whales were knocked back down during the Little Ice Age. People were, were freezing their butts off. So, so a lot of these fossil fuels have really benefited society and really benefited wildlife in ways that aren't, aren't being highlighted enough. In terms of, uh, you know what you said, it's CO2, uh, I think you mentioned UV, but it should be infrared. It, it absorbs the infrared and... and it sends it back out again. And so it, it, it doesn't trap it. It just delays it going out. But if, if you look at a lot of these, uh, maximum temperatures, the maximum temperatures have been going down. So they're really not causing a lot of heat accumulation. To accumulate heat, the maximum has to be going up. And this water vapor, if you assume CO2 is warming it, and it's a possibility, you could say, okay, a warmer surface is going to create a little more moisture. It, it's, it's a reasonable hypothesis, but the other side of that is is the, the natural cycles of El Nino, where they take heat that's been sort of trapped at depth and then sort of spread it out across the ocean. That causes all this convection and a lot more moisture. So a lot of this rise in, in humidity in certain places correlates best with with El Nino cycles. Hmm. And, and it doesn't correlate all that. It, you know, on a very gross level, it correlates with the rise in CO2. But it's it's more with El Nino, and I would expect as as El Ninos start to go down, as right now the sunspots and and solar irradiation is sort of dropping off, like it was almost during the Little Ice Age. I, I think you're gonna you're not gonna see any further rise in uh, the humidity in, in the the water vapor, and and that's gonna be because of the way that the sun and the oceans all work together. And if we see a cooling cycle, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that the the proponents of this are going to say something like global warming has now caused global cooling. Well, they're already doing that, and that's, that's part of what it is. It's, and when, you're, when you have a theory that says it can blame everything, it's almost instead of saying God did it, you say CO2 does it. It's, it's, it's like a cult following right now. And, and, and they are blaming it. There's a couple of papers that say, oh, it's, oh, you know, it's warming in the Arctic is causing cooling. All, all the, every time there's been cold spells in, in Europe, in eastern United States, like they've had for the last four or five years, which would be what you'd expect with the solar cycles in the, in the La Niñas, they're blaming on, on global warming. So they've been able to, to, to say anytime anything happens, and you, it, I mean, it goes to a place where it was a Congress lady said, well, more prostitution is due to global warming. Yeah. See, I've seen more kitten, stray kittens is due to global warming. You have more drought, you have more floods. Whatever it is, they, you know, it's sort of, I can make a correlation. Rising CO2 and this happened, bingo, there's my statistics. And it's nuts. And people, I'm just amazed at how many people will start getting afraid by that, by this graph that's just a statistical fabrication that really doesn't give people a good understanding of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I haven't vetted this yet to know if it's real because stuff does get essentialized, but I saw something on Facebook today that pretty much said that there is some politician now saying that we can blame the rise in Islamic fundamentalism in the Middle East on global warming. Oh, they absolutely did. Uh, I think it was Andrew Friedman. They did, there was a show, uh, uh, Years of Living Dangerously, and, and part of that was pushing, well, here's, 
this drought in Syria and this caused this disruption. Well, there's then, <laughs> I mean, there's all these battles and, and a drought in the desert. No. And, and they've been screwing the, and the, the, the Turks have been trying to hold back some of the water. There's been all this, you know, how much is, is irrigation? Uh, there's been so much land disruption from, from different regimes there that, you know, I, I did an analysis of that and kind of sent something out when they did their uh, years of living dangerously. It's, it's, it's just, it totally misses the boat and it's just capitalized. Somehow this, somehow this, the world's coming to the end due to CO2 seems sexy to people and they push it left and right in, in any kind of catastrophe they leak to it. And, and again, it just, if you drop CO2, is the war in Syria going to go away? <laughs> No. Drive it. It's just, it's, it's nuts. It just takes you away from the real fundamental issues. Drive a hybrid and bring peace to the Middle East. I've now heard it all. Um, That's right. <laughs> so are, what are some of the more egregious examples where the current politics of CO2 warming have misdirected our efforts where we could be better stewards of the environment? Well, you know, I, I, I look through all the classic examples of, uh, in, in California, one of the first ones was by a, a lady named, named uh, Camille Parmesan, and, and she saw some butterflies. It was the either shaker spot, and she said, "Oh, they've been going extinct due to global warming." And previous conservationists said, "Well, no, it's because of the way we've changed land use that they've lost a lot of their habitat, uh, et cetera, et cetera." And, and she even had one study where uh, the butterflies were. Uh, they had kind of moved into a new habitat that had been logged. And in that logged area, they used another species of plant that's an annual and, and is real susceptible to the cold spells you get up in the Sierras. Well, they moved in and after 10 years went extinct, but she blamed it on global warming. At the same time, where those butterflies were naturally, and, and literally only 10 feet away, you could throw a rock between what she designated as two species, those butterflies did better than they had ever done. And she didn't tell that in her paper, though. It, it was in a previous paper that she referenced, but if you don't look up that, you won't see it. So she said, here, here's these, these butterflies are going extinct due to global warming, which is causing, uh, premature, uh, snow, or late spring snowfalls and killing these butterflies when it had nothing to do with, with global climate. It had to do with the microclimate that was changed by the logging. And in the natural habitat, they were doing better than ever. It, it should have been, uh, an example of how resilient, if you protect the habitat, the species are totally resilient. It, they, they got published. I tried to get an official retraction, and they didn't want to do it. But then we had a bunch of our top climate scientists were looking for an example of saying, well, if climate change only caused a, a, a half a degree warming uh, in global temperatures, it doesn't seem like much. But look, it's killing these butterflies, and they use that. They use the golden toad as another example. So, so they take these small changes, erroneously blame it on global warming when the facts are totally against it, and then say, look how, how CO2 is killing you. I, I looked at the emperor penguins, and people kind of capitalized that on that as like, you know, here's the march of the penguins. I don't know if you saw that documentary. But yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a, a beautiful documentary, but these, that colony had suffered in the 70s, and there was a small spike in temperature for one year. But, but the reason the, the colony suffered was because uh, it was right next to, in the documentary you don't see it, but it was right next to the French research station. And they would go out and they would grab these penguins. Now, I, I did bird banding it, but banding a, an emperor penguin is a bigger chore. And they're trying to save all their heat because the, the males have to, 
they have to uh, fast for four months. Waiting, the female lays the egg, then goes out and comes back, and they got to walk hundreds of kilometers to find open ocean to 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 swim. So after being harassed, a lot of them just moved and they went to a different place. But they said, "Here's global warming." Now, if you looked at the temperature data from the Antarctic Survey, the British Antarctic, there, there's actually been no trend, and a slight cooling trend on that part of East Antarctica. Yet some of these penguin scientists, like David Ainley, had on his website a, a, a graph showing temperatures going up and up and up, and saying, "See what's going to happen." And he, he, he teaches, he sends us out for kids in education. Oh, if it keeps getting warmer, you're going to kill all these penguins. Well, the reason the population went down was due to human disturbance. They, people were were bothering them while they were trying to mate, while they were trying to save their energy, and they're blaming clo- global warming when there was actually no regional warming whatsoever. So I'm, it, when I started seeing all those things, at first I was just going to write essays and said, this is worth more of a book. Pe- people got to understand that there's some bad science because people are just mesmerized by, by his climate change. It, it, I, it, I don't think it's like a conspiracy. I just think you grab onto it, and then we're, we're all blinded by our beliefs. And, and, you know, that's going to affect us. I don't care what side you're on. But what you need is a lot of good dialogue to, to kind of get us out of that blindness. And, and that's what's sort of the problem right now is people trying to shut down that dialogue, trying to denigrate anyone who's a the, skeptic. The science and, is in. The debate is over. We need to act now. That's, that's, that's exactly what they're pushing. To shut you up and don't say things like that. And, There's more examples. Like I'm on your website now, and I, here's uh, an essay you wrote that I think is part of your book. Why do polar bear experts claim in one scientific paper that heavy ice is bad for seals and bears, then in another paper claim that less ice is killing seals and bears? And the polar bears become like the poster baby for you know for climate change. Absolutely. And if you listen to to the uh, Inuits, they'll say it's the time of the most polar bear. And, and, and they'll, they'll document that, but then the climate science tries to argue with them and say, oh no, it's, you're just misreading it. They're being forced to show you're not really seeing them. Well, who's got the illusions? And, and, and the, the Inuits, one thing I kind of said, we thought they try to ask for, the bowhead whales have been decimated during the Little Ice Age whaling, and they were starting to come back, and the Inuits were saying, we want to renew our whaling. Well, people said, no, there's not enough. And they said, no, there's three times as many as you say. And and uh, well, how do you know that? Well, it, it wasn't such a loaded question. It was fairly low, but not like it is with global climate. But they said, listen, we go out on the ice. We hear them. They don't. They are going under the ice, and you're missing them in your surveys. Mm-hmm. And so, so the some of the scientists say, okay, we'll listen to you. What, what the scientists have been doing is when the winds change, the ice opens up, they see the whales go by, they count them. And then the winds shift the other way, the ice closes, they don't see them. And so they were missing a lot. Well, you know, and I know some of the people that did this, they put all these hydrophones down and listened and kind of did a, a, a sound survey. And the Inuits were right on. They, they had it down to, to, and I don't know how they counted. But they were able to say, no, there's three times as many, and that's what the final surveys came up with. Well, they've done the same thing with polar bears. They say, oh, look, there's hardly any here. And they said, no, you're missing them over here, you're missing them over here. And they would point out to people, and scientists, Western scientists, and say, do your research this way, and you'll have a better uh, understanding. They said the polar bears weren't going down in the Hudson Bay. And our climate scientists said, no, they're going to go down to 400 within the next Five, fifteen years. Well, the latest surveys show they're right back up where the Inuit said they were. 
So, you know, in some ways, if I'm going to listen to who's right in the Arctic, I'd listen to the Inuit. They, they are the local people. They sit down as a community. They share all their information and, and they know better where, whereas the politics of climate change is trying to say, oh, they're, they're dead. They're ready. They're almost going extinct. When every single study shows that they're doing better than ever. I think one of the things that, that, that indigenous cultures like, like the Inuit have as well is a very accurate historical record, even though it's primarily oral. So when you listen to an Inuit elder talk about the, the current uh, situation in where he lives, he's not speaking just from his 70 years of life. He's speaking for multiple generations, and they know what's happened through these cycles throughout time far better than we do, because for us, if it's not in a book, it's not real. And we didn't have researchers doing the research that we're talking about to get these numbers, you know, 200 years ago in the Arctic. There was nobody doing that. But it, they were living there, and they had to live there, and, and they they lived or died based on these realities. Absolutely. And, and a couple of climate scientists try to denigrate their opinion by saying, well, they hadn't published anything. They hadn't written it down. And it's, it's, it's like it, you do anything to kind of say uh, – People who disagree are wrong. But they'll but, quickly, if they get one guy to say the ice used to be here and now it's way over there, if they can get now he's an expert, right? As soon as he says something that fits their narrative, we must listen to him. He's, he's a native person from this area. His father hunted seals here. But as soon as he says, yeah, but there's more. No, no, you're wrong. You don't know. It's like whatever fits the narrative goes in and then you just omit everything else. That's right. And that's the politics of when you're ever being an advocate. When I was an undergraduate, all my professors said, don't be an advocate. As soon as you do that, you lose your objectivity. And what's been turned completely on his head now is all the climate scientists are the worst advocates you could see. And they're doing science by press release, by op-eds. And they're, they're just kind of totally lost. They're, they're so invested in having this one point of view that that's all they'll push. That's all they'll advocate. And they'll try to shut down everybody. The Kevin Trimberth is one of those. And, and he had a, uh, a little cartoon at the end of one of his speeches that got published saying, uh, global, uh, warming is not the biggest threat to humankind. Global warming skeptics are. Huh. And when, and he, Yeah, it's part of the National Center for Atmospheric Research, and a lot of the funding for all this kind of research that could go to more looking at natural cycles uh, all tend to go to all these CO2 studies. Well, it, if you were a skeptic and you wanted funding, and and the top guys are saying you're the biggest threat to to, to the globe, you you all your skepticism has to be well couched. It has to be hidden, or, or or you just don't go there. You try to find a way to look at how CO2 is working, and. And in that sense, there's been, you know, it, you know, I don't say it's sort of a planned conspiracy, but it, it always happens when the people at the top push one thing, all the science goes that way for a while. Are you familiar with Pornell's Iron Law of Bureaucracy? Have you ever heard of this? Uh, no. Okay, so the Iron Law basically states in any, in any significant size group with bureaucracy, there'll be two groups of people. One will be people committed to the mission, and one will be people committed to the organization itself. And in every case, the people committed to the organization will end up at higher levels of privilege and rank and authority and will set the policy and will will focus on the organization to the exclusion of the mission. And that sounds like exactly what you've just described to me. Well, you know, I, I think all bureaucrats, you don't, don't lose your job, 
yeah. Uh, if you do whatever they're saying. So you don't take risks. You don't think outside the box. And, and that's why you sort of need a, a, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs on a lot of different levels. You need a lot of different discussion. And, and science used to be that way. A lot of all the universities would invite people in and say, here, do what you think and see if you can, uh, show us why you're thinking this way, bring new creative ideas in. Um, but, once the university has a certain uh, way of looking at things, then that's they want to bring in the same kind of people to kind of reinforce each other. And so you, you just get this sort of loyalty that, that no one thinks out the, outside the box anymore. And so you get this uh, pseudo consensus is really not based on reality, but based on the organization. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, how do you answer this too? Like, cause this is the, this is like what I call the silver bullet objection of the AGW true believer. Even if we're wrong, we're better off if we do this stuff. Right? So if I'm right, then we need to do this or the world's going to end. And if I'm wrong, we're still better off if we do this. I don't quite agree with that. Well, I, I, I don't either. And, and actually what I try to show people is, you know, that misdiagnosing this is caused us to make the worst decision. And, I, and one example would be biofuels. There's been all these subsidies for, for corn where sort of in the Great Plains, which sort of dry and you're, you're pulling up all this water from aquifers. If they did sort of uh, dry land type of agriculture, then that would be more harmonious with what's going on. But instead, because you're getting these subsidies for biofuels, people are now pulling out more water from the aquifers and causing that to go down quicker. The European Union subsidizes all this palm oil. And so like in Indonesia, people are just, you know, raping the forest. The orangutans are ready to go extinct uh, because they're losing all this habitat. And it's being supported by subsidies that are pushing this sort of belief that, you know, we've got to stop global warming by uh, pushing uh, fossil fuel, uh, biofuels, where I think we'd be much better off taking a lot of that from the ground, you know, where you're not disturbing any of the environment on, on the surface, you allow more habitat, the, the fossil fuels would be much better. I, the, the windmills I have a problem with because they, they've been deadly for birds and bats. And, and uh, I, I'm a big fan of decentralized solar. If everyone could get it on the roofs or whatever, but some of these big solar are, are just uh, bird fryers, you know, bird flies mm. across them and zap, they're gone. So, uh, but a lot of things are getting pushed. And so like with the windmills, you know, uh, Obama just said, okay, we'll allow more uh, eagle deaths hit by windmills because we need to push this against global warming. It, 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 if you look at a lot of these different examples, they're, it's doing just the opposite. You know, they're, they're habitat marginal farms that would be going back to the wild are, are now being farmed with biofuels so you're so you're losing that and it's really not doing anything for co2 so it you know as i mentioned with the golden toad here's these conservationists they're trying to save uh this toad because it was this introduced disease they're being fought against their strategy is being fought in the literature and, and in other ways saying oh uh you know is co2 what you got to do is, is stop driving uh cars and whatever the, the, one of the big ladies I mentioned, Parmesan, she's pushing, uh, she wants to have her own Noah's Ark. She wants to start moving animals to different places where the models say they're going to suffer. And these models are not getting the regional climates right anyways. But, but as an ecologist, some of the worst things you can do is start moving everything all different places. You look, you look at the Everglades, they're struggling with, with all these introduced species people have pushed in. So, I mean, I, I can go on a, a lot of different ways where, a blind belief that the biggest threat is global warming and people do all these actions 
that are actually contrary to what would make a better environment. So just so I'm clear, you're basically saying that you agree with what I've been saying, that Absolutely. this is doing more harm than good. Absolutely. That, that we actually are not just not correcting what we could be correcting, but we're actually doing active harm in our pursuit of lower CO2 levels to the exclusion of all other things. Absolutely. And you're a scientist. Yeah, absolutely. So your opinion, my opinion doesn't mean anything, but because you're a scientist, I can now say a scientist agrees with me. That's, that's, Where'd you that's go? <laughs> I mean, have you felt any backlash because of your stance other than just, you know, I, any of us that say anything controversial are going to have friends and associates that disagree with us. But have you felt any, you know, like institutional level backlash for, for what your stance well, is? You no, know, I'm, I'm retired from the university now. Uh, so I, I, but you know, I had different colleagues who read the book were a little skeptical, but have given me excellent feedback and people that read it and see where I'm coming from. I feel like I've changed their minds. I, you know, the, I got a few internet snipers who, you know, one, I got one nut case is sort of almost dedicated his website to, Trying to undermine everything I did. I even I had two two pictures of how we had restored this meadow, and, and he tried to come online and say, "Oh, all oh, those pictures are are not real." You know, what are you talking about? Says, so you know, I showed a graph from the U.S. Historical Network showing that Yosemite's maximum temperatures were higher in the 30s, and he tried to attack that in all these kind of crazy ways. So there, there's a few internet snipers out there that that any time you you don't say the world's coming in, they If they're paranoid and you tell them not to worry, they actually think you're trying to disarm them and they go after you even harder. But most of the people that once they've read the book have been really favorable. And in, in the people that I know, the, the dean of, of science, he used to be the president of the California Academy of Science, wrote the, the intro to the book. And, you know, he's in much agreement with it. He feels like there might be a little bit of CO2 influence, but most of it's all natural and it is Just a bad, a bad case of politics is corrupting the science. Now, but, but your position is not that we can just ignore all the pollution that, um, you know, extracting fossil fuels causes there. And that's like my other thing. Like, so like coal, am I, I'm not so much worried about the CO2 that comes from burning it, but the mercury levels that it causes, the sulfur oxidation in the groundwater, all of these things seem to be a problem. And those also seem to me to be things that just get ignored. Because the paper that gets published, the grant that gets filled, et cetera, all focuses on this one issue. Uh, absolutely. And, and that's what people say, are, are you for pollution? I go, what are you talking about? Because I'm not, you know, CO2 is plant food. And there's, like, it, you know, but mercury, if, if you're showing that you're putting out mercury poison, fix it. And technologically, we can try to deal with that. You know, if you're causing acidification from, from too much sulfur, find a way to fix that. Those, those are solutions. You know, I... I'm grateful for cleaning up the air, cleaning up the water. That's what I would call myself as an environmentalist. But it, it's CO2 I do not see as a pollutant. I don't see it causing all this danger, but that seems to be what people are locked onto. And they they sort of forget, you know, that that pollution is, you know, it, it has a lot of different definitions. I had a couple of friends that just say, well, you know, if if you don't believe in global warming, do you recycle? And I go, well, What did I just say have to do with anything with recycling? But it's sort of been all uh, mashed together in this idea that if you don't believe in global warming, you don't believe in a good environment, you don't, you, you accept any kind of pollution. And, and, you know, I have to say the advocates of, of global warming have done a good job of kind of pushing that meme. Yeah, I mean, I've been taught, like, 
I, I did one YouTube video that came out and, and I talked a little bit about this issue. And I also talked about solar and how beneficial it actually is. And I had commenters that actually said, you can't possibly be for solar uh, energy and be skeptical about CO2. Like that's like those two things are mutually exclusive. And I, I, I listen to stuff like that and I think how warped must the mind become to think that you can't like it's not possible it had to be a, like it would had to be a trick and as far as your stalker dude if you don't have a few, few stalkers you're not making an impact on the internet today i've got plenty of them. <laughs> i understand but well that's that's the amazing thing is you know i say y'all get blinded by your beliefs and and you have to be able to let that go to really see the greater truth and it but It's, I'm sorry, this is sort of a religion. It's a cult following. It's a, and I think once people feel like it's the end of the world, you know, I, I think of that Heaven's Gate group. Uh, all these high-tech guys think that, that there was a comet and there was a spaceship behind it, and if they castrated themselves and then drank Kool-Aid, they were going to be teleported up to this spaceship. And these are highly intelligent, high-tech folk. Well, how do you fall for that? Uh, <laughs> people do. I don't. I don't get it really. I mean, I do and I don't. It's it's a very sad thing. It's, it. it but I, I think that is a big problem. And I so I think like another problem that no one wants to talk about is how damaging this whole message is to our younger people. I, I do a lot of stuff with permaculture, so I go to conferences and things like that. I was just at one in California, and the one guy said to me, he goes, people don't realize that in 20 years where we're sitting is going to be covered in water. And we were sitting by, at least we were sitting by a harbor. It's not like we were on top of a mountain or anything, but the harbor is like 12 feet below us. And I'm like, do you understand that the, the absolute doomsday predictions of the IPPC is for that water to come up one inch? And it, it couldn't even be processed. And it was like, and you see all these, these young people that are just like, they've given up on a future. Like they've actually been convinced that there's like, it's too late. The Republicans are going to destroy everything and we're all just going to die. So we might as well just accept it. And I think that that's very damaging to the progression of, of human science, of human engineering, of human initiative. And when I see it in people that are actually committed to doing good stuff, let alone people that are playing video games, it really bothers me. And I think that's another damaging point of this. Well, absolutely. That's why I was, I was hoping to write a book that was, you know, stayed away from all the politics. It's just, here's a biologist. This is what I'm seeing. This is how there's some bad science. And, and when you start thinking all these species are, are dying, uh, there's not really good science to back that up. But it, it does have this tremendous effect on people. And it, it, you, know, you mentioned the, the sea level, actually from San Francisco to Alaska, For the last 15 years, the sea level really hasn't risen, which is, you know, it's, it's just gone flatter. And, and, and there's all this push to put don't have debate within the school systems. But all these kids that are being taught that global warming is causing the end of the earth, th there's really been no rise since 98. So none of these kids that are in high school now have experienced global warming whatsoever. Yet you get this hype that, oh, everything's dying and, and you're living it now. The facts just don't support that. Yeah, and, and I, I, I find a big problem with that, too, because isn't science supposed to be the place where everything is questioned? Isn't that the point? And, and that's, that's, again, that's partly what motivated me to write. I, I feel like science has been defiled. Instead of motivating more discussion, more debate, it, and it's these climate scientists refuse debate. There was, there was uh, the John Stossel show. It brought out Roy Spencer, who runs the uh, 
uh, does a lot of the satellite monitoring, and he's a skeptic. And Gavin Schmidt from NASA, who's a is a, a strong alarmist CO2 type guy, and, and Schmidt wouldn't come out in in debate. He would he would only come out on stage if the skeptic wasn't even on the stage. And so there's this whole push, and like I said with the Trenberth in his little cartoon, is saying uh, skeptics are are the biggest threat. It, there's this been a whole push not to have any kind of debate, which defiles what science is. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's been another big problem that I've had. The the the, the shut up and go away component of this uh, takes us away from actually finding solutions to a lot of the real problems we have. So, kind of as we get toward the end here, that's what I would like to talk to you about. What can we do to actually build a more resilient environment and solve a lot of these problems? Well, if I was to do my career over again, I'd be a hydrologist. And, and at least in the West, you know, I see some of the biggest problems have is been streams have been channelized, wetlands have been lost. And before you can really manage the habitat, you got to have a, a, the watershed working. And, and a lot of times what happened in our area was that uh, once the stream got caught in a channel, it has all this energy. And instead of having access to the floodplains, it stays in that channel and it erodes deeper. You know, if it gets out in the floodplains and it kind of it diminishes all that energy. And usually, when the water goes out in the floodplains, it, it just rearranges the sediment, so you don't have this er- erosion. But if it's stuck in that channel, it just shunts all that sediment and water out, and you get this channel, and you drop you drop the uh, water table, the the vegetation dries up. That's you know, for us, uh, for wildlife, it's the willows and alders and stuff are sort of the, the most important food sources. And especially, we have this summer drought all the time, so a lot of the animals come out of the from the sagebrush and the forest and come into these uh, wet meadows. So, you know, I would try to fix, do that kind of habitat restoration um, and, and just have people conscious. And, it, it, and what was sort of the government for, for a long time is sort of subsidizing insurance and encouraging people to build on the floodplain. And when that happens, it's, it's harder to get the floodplains back. And, and then you end up paying for people every time they get flooded out. So, you know, one, I, I think the government should get rid of all those subsidies, but you have a, a, a legacy of you've lured people out there. And <laughs> once you say, I'm not going to subsidize it, you sort of lost uh, the housing value. So it's, I, I think they were going to drop some of that insurance. And then they realized there's a political backlash. And I'm, I'm not sure where it is right now, but, uh, that would be one of my main things to do is you can kind of have people understand the hydrology and how that affects everything, try to protect it that way. That's uh, interesting because, like, one of the biggest things that I'm doing everywhere that I go designing, you know, sustainable systems is for putting in swales that are infiltrating water. And we see immediate change to landscape when we do that. We spread the water out. We slow it down. We make it go through the ground instead of over it. It stops the erosion. And a ditch like, and people think I'm crazy, but it, it, to hear you say that is like validating. I've been saying for a long time that we, we can't fix every problem with a ditch, but a properly constructed ditch can do more for environmental restoration than cutting the CO2 coming out of your car. Absolutely. And that's what I said. When we fixed our watershed, everyone, you know, there's a number of scientists that said the California drought's all natural, but there's a few that have been trying to push it as CO2. But despite one of these worst droughts in the last hundred years, by fixing that watershed, that place has remained wetter. There's more birds on it. The vegetation is better. And we were about ready to lose all the kind of willows there. So if you understand how the hydrology works, you can make it work. And, and some people want to get rid of cattle, saying, oh, the vegetation is dying because of the oh. cattle. Well, we wanted to make it a win-win because the ranchers are sometimes your best allies 
uh, versus development. And, and a lot of those ranchers saw that we improved, uh, the grazing as well as the, as the wildlife. And they were trying to adopt those kind of policies on their own ranches because they saw how that the stream channels have been degraded. So it, there's, I think a lot of that water, you can fix a lot of that stuff and, and you, you lower the temperatures. You, you make it more resilient, whether it's hotter or where it's drier or whatever. And if we look back, you know, I look at Lake Tahoe, there's trees, at the bottom of Lake Tahoe that grew there 6,000 years ago. There were some ugly droughts that we've had that have lasted for hundreds. It's sort of what drove a lot of the uh, Pueblo culture out of the Southwest. We have to expect these kind of droughts naturally. Not And if you do something with CO2, it doesn't matter. You're still going to get those droughts. And the best thing to do is make your land resilient, and that's understanding the, how the hydrology and the habitat make it more resilient. That That's... That's absolutely bang on as far as I'm concerned. And I, I think that that is like the biggest thing we do is, is, is instead of trying to say we're going to stop this, which we're not going to, is to build systems that can deal with it. And absolutely. you bring up the cattle. I think that's interesting. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Alan Savory. Oh, absolutely. I, I love his work. He's amazing. In one of his presentations, he shows this, this fence line. And the one side of the fence line has been national park for a hundred years. And there's not been a cow there for a hundred years. And the other side of the fence is open grazing rangeland with no discipline. And the difference between the two sides is the fence. Looks exactly the same on both sides. And it's not, so the cow's not necessarily damaging or fixing the problem. But then he shows places where he goes in and there's not a blade of grass. And all they use is cattle, but they discipline the cattle. They control the grazing. They mimic... Uh, the way that herd animals graze when there are top predators by controlling and mob grazing systems. And you see the same land two years later at the end of the dry season, and it's completely revegetated, and he doesn't even do anything with swales or hydrology. He just uses cattle mimicking these natural systems. And then here's somebody turn around and attack cattle as being the cause of the drought because somebody made an infographic that explains how much water a cow drinks to make a gallon of milk, and that cow's living in a barn – instead of doing its job out on the land, and you just realize the disconnect has has been almost so perfect that that's why I do see it as a, at least a little bit tacitly conspiratorial. Because it's so it's so the opposite of what actually is, and it's not hard to find out what is. Like It's not like this information is hidden or hard to find. It's just that whenever you bring it up, you're attacked for being crazy and right-wing and whatever. And, and I think most, of, most people... And, and I, I know different professors that I've showed them stuff and they go, Oh, I didn't know that. Well, they don't have the time to really delve into it. And people that are really bothered by this, we do. And, I, and there's some studies showing that skeptics are probably better, real, well-rounded about this issue than others. But, but part of that conspiracy is, it's, is, it's just whoever put that out the most on the internet, people just buy it without digging any deeper. And, and so hopefully, you know, what I'm grateful for, at least in this country, a number of places that have kind of kept the debate alive. I know Anthony Watts, I, I try to publish my essays on his place, because I think he's tried to keep a lot of the, uh, the debate alive on his website. And there's a few good scientists that have been kind of trying to keep the debate alive. Uh, you know, my biggest fear is the, you know, the school books have been trying to keep all that debate out and kind of just push this one kind of thing. So, uh, you know, that would be an issue for voters. So I'd, I'd be leery of, uh, 
you know, that sort of creates a conspiracy. And it's just people are going to advocate for that. And then all these kids learn that. And now you have an even greater inertia uh, that thinking, that, oh, it, it's all done. The debate is over. So, you know, I, I don't think like there's a purposeful conspiracy other than people that are locked into their beliefs are going to push it. But I think that once they're afraid uh, to buck the system, you know, they become like bureaucrats, then that gets reinforced. So then you get even a bigger power. And I think on some levels there are people. I, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's some of the communists. Well, I, you know, I used to be a little bit of a leftist back in my, my college. And a lot of my friends are still are. When the revolution didn't happen, they kind of went into using the environment. And you can, and it's sort yeah. of, some of them are using it as a way to attack capitalism. So there's, you know, there's a lot of strange bedfellows in this. And, you know, I, I don't think of it as a monolithic um, conspiracy, but together it all conspires to make it happen. And, you know, it, it, when you've only lived 40, 50 years and you see weather change and it changes on 30 or 40 year cycles, it all seems new to you and you don't understand it and you get a little scared by it. It, You know, the, I know the Pope just was being brought into this, but the last time a Pope came out on climate was Pope Innocence, just as we went into the little ice age and in the middle of a warm period, every, you know, everybody started doing well and uh, agriculture was great. And then it started getting colder. It started getting crazier. Crops failed. They had more floods, more droughts. And the Pope came out and blamed witchcraft. And then they went on a witch hunt and it almost feels like it's, it, it feels like understand what's thing. going on and they're going on a witch hunt. It does feel like the same thing, and it makes me think of a, 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 a quote by Upton Sinclair, which it is, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. Absolutely. And there's a lot of money and prestige and committee assignments and political things and stuff right now that it's much a much easier path to gain advancement if you just toe the party line than if you rebel against it. And a system like that is going to create a skewed result. You can, you can claim that, you know, 98% of everybody agrees. I don't even think that's true. No, they're going to end up with a majority agreeing when they're paid to agree. Absolutely. So, so you know, what I, what I think if the natural cycles are right, and actually I got about a thousand dollars worth of bets out on this, but I think we're going to see Arctic ice start to recover. And, <laughs> Based on how I see the sun affect the, the heat transport into the Arctic, in, in comparison that with the Antarctic where, where ice is growing, that, that I think that the cycle of pushing ice, uh, hot water into the Arctic is now starting to dwindle and we'll start to see recovery. And it's sort of flattened out for the last couple of years, but it's, it's too soon to kind of make any conclusions. But I've told people by 2030, you're going to see instead of no ice in the Arctic, like the, the CO2 alarmists are saying that you're going to see some of that recover. And I, and I think when that happens, you're going to see a lot of people that have been on the fence will start to come out and all that will change. But that's, that's sort of what we need to have happen right now is 15 is, more years of not getting stuff fixed though. That's well, that's why I understand that. But it, you know, I, I really don't think that battle line is going to change that much except for what we're trying to push here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like focusing on the solution really is the way to go. And there are ways we can fix things. People say, you know, you don't believe in climate change. And I say, I believe in climate change in a variety of ways, but I believe that when we go somewhere, and we use agricultural practices that aren't in keeping with, with, with resiliency and are not regenerative. And we turn an area into a desert that wasn't a desert. 
we've changed the climate, and it's incumbent upon us to then realize what we've done and use the simple technologies that are available to put it back to the way it was, and in many instances, I think, make it better. Absolutely. And, and I think we really can do that. You know, and another good example of that is not just serving agriculture is when Superstorm Sandy hit hit the East Coast. You know, it actually uh, contradicted all the predictions because uh, they were saying that you're going to have a more uh, Class Five hurricanes. Well, it was a Class Two, and the reason it caused so much damage is actually there was a colder uh, water in the Atlantic which pushed it eastward, which was also contradicting CO2 theory. But the reason it also caused so much damage is people had eliminated the coastal marshes and the sand dunes that was a natural protection against that. You're going to have that. And some of the communities along the East Coast had been trying to rectify that and were bringing back some of the protective dunes. And, and those communities didn't suffer like some of the other places. So, that it's, it's you know, we're going to have these natural weather calamities. It's, it, it, if, if you, I see people building in floodplains. The floodplain should tell you there's going to be a flood. You don't have to have any other prediction than that. But people build it and then are surprised when they see it. And I just don't think they have the eyes for it because our lives are too short to see these bigger cycles. But your protective sand dunes, the marshes, what we've done to all this land, if we bring that back, we have a more resilient society no matter what the weather throws at us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So how can people get your book, learn more about your work, read some of these great essays, and, and, and get all this information uh, that you have that, that, that says, hey, this isn't just my opinion. This is, this is real-world hard facts and real research. Yeah, and I, I, the book has about 900-plus uh, references in it from peer-reviewed uh, literature. It doesn't mean that the, the authors always agree with what I say, but it's the evidence that they supply and my interpretation of it. But uh, it, the book is called Landscapes and Cycles, Uh, an environmentalist journey to uh, climate skepticism. It's on Amazon.com. So, uh, you know, my name is Jim Steele, and my website is landscapesandcycles.net. And so there's a bunch of essays. That, a lot of them are uh, modified from the book and, that I published on uh, Anthony Watt's site, What's Up With That? Um, so, you know, all that's free on the website. So you, know, you can read those articles. If, if you want to know more from what I wrote in the book, uh, please go to Amazon.com and get Landscapes and Cycles. Yeah, definitely, folks. Please support uh, the work that's being done here. And, uh, again, I want to thank you for being on the show with us today um, and uh, for the work that you're doing and for being willing to speak out. It, it may be a little easier when you're no longer in the system, so to speak, uh, but it's probably still not the easiest thing you could have done. Uh, you just have to speak what you see. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm honored that you have me on. I, thank you very much. All right, folks. And with that, this has been Jack Spearco today along with Jim Steele helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Maria. 